Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. In this episode of Octanon Verba, we hear part two of my interview with Dr. Franklin C. Annis, author, veteran, and host of the Evolving Warfighter show. In part one, Dr. Annis discussed the power of being a lifelong learner and how he's empowering soldiers to overcome adversity through personal development. We also explored the importance of continuing to grow and study after formal education, using your own interest to shape your own real-world education, and how to overcome adversity by stopping the discussion around philosophy and to begin to embody it right now. You can hear part one on episode 75 of Octanon Verba. And now, part two of my interview with the evolving warfighter, Dr. Franklin Annis. And this is kind of a shame because, so Captain Partridge actually laid out the design of what we have now as our land-grant colleges. He tried to push it through Congress, but Morell land-grant. So after the Civil War, there was more interest in giving away land for universities to kind of have a taxpayer support. But the original construct was that, you know, every male going through college had kind of martial training and ability. And I think that just because of false philosophies out there, we think, hey, if we train everybody to fight, then they'll fight more. And any martial artist will say that's the absolute lie. Like the more violent and more capable you come with the violence, the less likely you are to get in a fight because you understand the stakes so much higher. But kind of the one regret I have looking back in the United States is that loss of treating every citizen like a militiaman. Truly, hey, to be an American we're going to give you what they call liberal education, which that phrase has changed so much through the years, but liberal means free. So the purpose of college was to give you everything you needed to be a free citizen. And that included, hey, this is how you carry a rifle. This is how you shoot a rifle. This is how you do a ruck march. You know, this is how you do a forward assault. And it's a shame that, you know, we've tried it through various places in the United States There was a a very big push right after the Civil War to to make sure that there was that martial training inside colleges, but that academia seems to always drift away the the kind of the more utopian thought that, hey, we can somehow escape our own nature and be less violent, therefore we shouldn't be teaching it. Or, hey, the martial arts are always just a waste of time where anyone that studies it understands that it's more than just going out or knowing how to fight. The mindset is so useful. And if we could train everyone or the majority of people to pick up more of that warrior mindset, we could reduce a lot of violence in our society and all sorts of other things. That's it. If you have the capacity for violence, like you said, you understand how devastating it is, which means that you want to avoid it at all costs. But at the same time, again, this idea that hoping that we're going to live in this utilitarian society where somebody is not going to try to come and take something that is mine at some point, it's only a matter of time before somebody sees that. 
that's on the other side and says, you know what, they have some stuff. I want that. I'm going to go get it. And if we don't have the ability to defend ourselves, then we can sit here and say that this is a riot or whatever it is. But history has shown us that we don't learn from history. But in the past, we have learned that continually we see these things going over and over. We see enough of these cycles. And as I get older, I see the cycles over and over again. Again, having the martial capacity, you walk with a different gait. You walk with your head up, your head's on a swivel. It doesn't mean that you're like constantly looking for threats, but at least you're aware that situational awareness gives you a little bit more an advantage. And then Tony Blauer says that you cannot have situational awareness without self-awareness. So all these things, again, it's this common thread that goes through all of these martial ideals, these martial philosophies. Again, stoicism is literally sort of the Spartan idea put into play. And to put all that together, even with what we talk about with work marches and things like that, we know how far we can go because we base it upon those soldiers from those centuries past, knowing that they could carry a 68-pound shield, knowing that they could do all these things shows us what the human body is capable of. And that's back then, let alone with modern technology, all these new things that we have at our disposal. It shows us that there's a lot more that we are capable of. But in the meantime, there is still this huge kind of like cultural battle where there's one side that thinks that being able to defend yourself is the worst sin, while on the other side, it's completely opposite where they're like, if you can't have the ability to defend yourself, it's impossible to be free. Well, you think how powerful would it be a deterrent if I said, even if we did just the land-grant schools, we required two years of ROTC for everyone that graduated of land-grant school. You think of other near-peer competitors, so Russia, China. Would you truly ever think about engaging in a war against a country where you could say, oh, they produce 40,000 people per year that could be instantly turned into NCOs or officers that already know how to fight? It's part of their basic curriculum at school. Like you could downsize the whole entire military because no one would ever screw with a country that had that type of embedded training mentality. And I think that that was kind of the wish of our founding fathers to depend on our militias, state control, local control, having the kind of power authority to defend yourselves at the local level. And that was the greatest deterrent ever for war is, hey, if we talk about now is kind of like the neighborhood watch, but the whole community would be involved in the defense. And the further we drift away from that construct, the more we see kind of the establishment of military families or the military recruitment is coming mostly from families that have some direct connection to military members. So in some ways you could argue, hey, including more people into the military really becomes a secondary recruiting technique. So Maybe my wife or spouse joins the military and she's not capable of deploying because she got pregnant with children. That's not really a bad thing because next generation, you're going to have those children inside wearing the uniform. But if that is allowed to happen for too long, you're going to have a family or a class of people that is culturally so different from the rest of the nation that at some point they're going to ask, well, why am I risking my lives for a republic when we can reform the government into whatever we want and we'll just throw a coup and that was kind of talked about i think in the 90s about how much that drift is happening and i think that america and especially our public education system we're kind of unique so we are the one country really in the world that isn't founded on an ethnicity we're founded on ideas so america is in itself a philosophy so at some point if you reject the American philosophy or this larger cultural construct of America, you have a whole bunch of people that are from 
different races, ethnicities, parts of the world, whether they came here first generation, they've been here for years, but there's nothing to hold America together as a tribe unless we believe in the same constructs and ideas. So the more our education system drifts away from kind of our founding principles, and the more we're taught to hate those principles, the less we have that kind of binds us as a society. And we're going to see increases of violence because of that, because we can't relate to people and we're going to lose kind of the progress. And I can say that obviously America's made its mistakes. Every country has, but overall through the course of history, we've made kind of really great steps in progress. And it would be disgraceful to allow kind of foreign philosophies to come in and say, Hey, if you made one mistake in the past, we're going to condemn your whole philosophical condition and then insert this philosophy that's never been tried and then we believe that it somehow will work better. We stick with the broken, maybe you know, not perfect philosophies and ideas that we can, through the course of generations, continue to try to polish? Or are we going to splinter off into thousands of different philosophies and then not have anything to bind us? Yeah, there's so much to that. And then this understanding that while it's not perfect, at least it's adaptable. We can change it as society evolves. We can evolve with it. And you're mentioning this idea of tribe. I mean, a tribe without warriors is soon forgotten. So we have to have the ability to, in the time that we're in now, we've had so much peace, at least in the West, where this is the first time in history where we've had the ability to actually take a deep breath and really examine a lot of things and not be worried about an invasion or lack of food or a lot of the things that historically, about every hundred years or so, something big happens, whether it be a plague, whether it be all these things where even most republics last, what, 200 years, maybe. So we're doing pretty good as far as that goes. But understanding that if we throw out the baby with the bathwater and try to start everything over again or start to implement communism or any splinter group of that, which as we have historically doesn't work, it's something that is beautiful again, theoretically. But having hypothetical discussions, it's really hard to poke holes in them because there's nobody that's going to actually put it into play. The other thing is when you have a country that has had freedom for so long, it's really difficult to expect to be able to shackle them with something like this and for it to not be something, like you said, a bloody coup or what have you. But having said that, there's a lot of people that don't understand what this would look like or that you can't just shift ideology because of something on paper or a mandate or what somebody writes as a law. And now all of a sudden, that's just the way it is. Human beings don't really run like that. Well, it brings some really interesting constructs. So if we continue down the path militarily that we're going, we're going to reach the point because of recruitment shortfalls or whatnot, we're going to have to start going into a draft. So either we're going to allow government to overreach, and that's going to be essentially whatever indentured servitude on some of our citizens. And unfortunately, right now, it looks like it will be just males that will bear that cost. Or we have a choice of saying, hey, we could invest this knowledge through contract staff, through non-government agencies to teach it in our colleges. So we can put the same knowledge in our citizens, but not have it through an authoritarian government. So maybe I'm saying that, hey, instead of you attending college and you have to take two years of ROTC run by the government, you could take some type of similar program and it's going to be run by the state and the state's going to give the instructors, the state's going to fully control that program. That program can never be actioned or activated by the federal government. And it's really just to build a battery of military knowledge inside our nation. It would be a great idea because, number one, we are getting incredibly fat in our society, so unhealthy that 
we really need to teach military fitness and training to every citizen just because we need to deal with the medical problems. So, hey, maybe two years of forced physical fitness isn't even forced. Hey, if you want a college degree, you're going to take two years of intense physical fitness training. And to consider you educated in America, we're going to need you to know how to control your diet and do intense workouts at least 45 minutes every day. I don't think that's too hard to ask of America. But we could keep it voluntary. Like, hey, if you don't want to do this, you don't want to play the game, you don't have to get that degree. It's not connected back to government, but it still serves the same purpose. I think we're going to have that hard choice of, are we going to offer something voluntarily and trust that people will choose the path and choose to become warriors? Or are we going to try to use force? And then we get into that initial problem that we even talked about education. Are we going to provide motivation that people can willingly accept kind of challenge themselves, expand themselves, have flexibility to shape their own character? Or are we going to just regiment and force something on someone that they don't want? They'll just suffer through for two years. And then the day they walk out, they'll never, ever do a push up again. It will be interesting to see which way the society goes in the future. Yeah. Now, there was a time in your life when you were talking about how there was an adversity that you went through where when you were transitioning and you weren't always a doctor, you weren't always the successful author and officer that you are now. Could you tell us a little bit about what that adversity was and the lesson that you gained from that? Yes. So coming back home from Iraq, I had some difficulty kind of with the transition. It happens fairly common, actually really common. You get back home, everybody's super happy to see you, they throw up parades, they do a whole bunch of cool stuff. They support you like crazy. And then you typically around the eight month mark, like life falls apart because you've been even trying just to deal with things by yourself or you can't get access to the right services. Unfortunately, I had to move to a place where I didn't have kind of local support. It was something that I would have to travel for almost an hour to try to get medical help or counseling for things. So you get stuck in remote areas. So around eight months, kind of everything went wrong for me. Got divorced, which would eventually lose me custody of my sons. A few weeks later, the contract job I was on ended. Here I am in kind of a remote town, mountain of debt because of divorce, ex-wife, graduate degrees got shifted onto me. I was looking at, I think, $300,000 in debt. I had to move halfway across the state to find a job because I was desperate for money. And I actually took a job with the Department of Labor being basically an outreach coordinator for homeless veterans. But I found myself as a homeless veteran in Nebraska in October, heading into the winter. And that was kind of the darkest moments of my life. So stayed for a while in Salvation Army trying to figure out, I'm trying to sell up a house in a town that's like three and a half hours away from me, try to clear that debt at least. How do I pay my bills in the National Guard? So, hey, I need to keep my credit rating because if I get a bad credit rating, my career's gone. So, hey, I can't screw up here because then I lose the income, small incomes that I have. And then it became a matter of, I really ran into Emerson's Self-Reliance, which is a great book, which says, hey, ignore the rest of the world. Listen to what your voice is saying, that inner spirit. Speak your truth as you know it today. If you made a mistake, then tomorrow, speak the truth as you know it tomorrow. Just keep going in life. And from there, I read Thoreau's Walden, which is a great book about going out into the woods, but it it really talks about bucking conventionality or realizing that a lot of the things that we do is just culturally based and it's not actually a requirement. So staying some nights at 
a homeless shelter. That's a terrible experience if you ever have to go into one. You get bed bugs, you get put with some incredibly violent men you know, all in a bunkhouse, kind of, because a lot of the homeless community just have untreated mental health problems. So it's like, hey, I got to get out of the situation as fast as I can. I'm going to get hurt here. And then ultimately, it became a choice of saying, I don't have enough money to pay my debts and see my sons. So what do you do? And it really became the easiest choice in my life to be like, okay, I got to figure out a way to not to be homeless for several years. Because if I get an apartment, if I rent anything, I'm not going to have the money to visit my sons. So it's like, what do you do? At that point, it's like, hey, I have this beat up old pickup truck, but there's an ambulance company that was selling a used ambulance. So I sold my a pickup truck. I think I had to throw in a couple thousand dollars and it was beautiful. I got a beautiful 1999 Ford ambulance. I said to myself, I'm going to turn this into a tiny home. I stopped caring what other people think. And luckily, my platoon sergeant that I deployed with, he had retired and he he helped me put a little tiny wood stove in it, but I refitted the inside. And I think my sons loved going out on adventures with dad because we went out camping, even when it was snowing outside and that thing and wood stove kept us warm. But it was a matter of taking a look at life and saying, hey, pay your debts, do the honorable thing. If it includes like, hey, you're going to work during the day and you're going to throw bags of dog foods on the shelf at night. That's great because if you're throwing bags of dog food on the shelf at night, then you're not cold inside a vehicle. So it's better to be working than to be cold. And then how do you get over things? Like, hey, I need a shower. I'm going to buy a gym membership. Hey, it's super cheap, 10 bucks a month. Well, that gives me access to a shower. Well, I can maintain my physical fitness while I'm there because that will increase my endorphins. Hey, no matter how bad things get, hey, this is miserable. I'm tired. Hey, get on the treadmill. Go run for 20 minutes. You'll feel better about yourself. It was a lot of hard work, but after, interestingly enough, I even got promoted at my job and I was for a time running the statewide Nebraska homeless outreach program. And it was hilarious because I'd walk into meetings, they'd be like, this guy really understands homeless veterans. And it's like, I'm just not going to tell you I'm living in the ambulance outside. Well, that, that's why you understood them so well. You were their people. Yeah. Yeah. So after, well, it was almost four years of living in that little tiny home that, and I got back on my feet, paid off all the debt. Never had to declare bankruptcy, never missed payments, but it was a matter of saying, hey, I think that there's a damage that can happen to your soul that if you take something that you don't earn, it hurts you. And now I'm not going to be a big grudgy guy. I've been in places where if I don't get inside, I'm going to freeze to death and I don't have enough food, so I have to take a free meal. I understand that. But the second that you can pay for your own food versus taking something, you do it. The second that you can figure out a living condition you do it because if you do it yourself, you can restore yourself of self-pride. You're doing it your own way. Stop thinking about what society thinks of you. Society doesn't care about you in the first place. So it doesn't make sense to even care about what they think of you. And they'll even hate you if you become self-reliant. I could tell you stories about being absolutely hated for pulling myself out of poverty. I think there's an enormous ability to if you shuck off all the cultural expectations to be like, hey, I'm going to go stock shelves at night at Home Depot. It was a really great experience for me because the other thing I really focused on that time was always be doing something to make your life better. So if it was just one thing, one thing a day, it would help you. And so whether that's like, hey, I'm building a little table into the area I need to work. Here, I wrote a doctoral dissertation sitting on the back of an ambulance on a little tray table that folded up that I made. 
in the back of this ambulance knowing that, hey, if I can finish this doctorate degree, it'll open up doors to get better jobs and escape. But even when I was working at Home Depot, it's like, hey, if you have time, listen to audiobooks. There's a great website called LibriVox.org. I'm not sure if you know it, but thousands, thousands of free. Yeah, LibriVox recordings, great historical stuff, great philosophical stuff. Learn about Alexander the Great, Marcus Aurelius, anybody that you want to learn about. So you're out of excuses if you guys say, I don't have $7 for a book or I don't have $20 for Audible. It's like, it's there if you want it. And I think that's a lot of ways really helped me in my career because a lot of the strategic books that are asked of kind of field grade leaders to read, I had an introduction to them when I was throwing stuff on shelves or working out. And I really got to enjoy Klotzwitz. Like I, I listened to Klotzwitz, no, no expectation of ever being tested on Klotzwitz. So I could listen to him, absorb, and really question. So I wasn't thinking like, oh, I need to write this essay on this specific question. So by the time I came back to Klauswitz and military training, I was like, well, I was light years ahead of my peers, but it was really eye-opening because it's like a lot of my peers will do the homework, but then it's like, you never understood Klauswitz because you never took the time to kind of throw away all expectations and just listen to the book. So yeah, just kind of focus on one thing every day and then you can dig yourself out of a hole. And I can say that I'm definitely more of a transcendentalist than I am a stoic because I will tell you that I've slept in, well, the back of the ambulance, I could keep about 50 degrees warmer than the outside. So I can say I've slept in environments that were below freezing that really I shouldn't have been sleeping in. But I can tell you rage against injustice, against the situation can keep you warm at night. Hatred, as much as it will consume you and as much as it will damage you, if you embrace it too long, it is the one really motivational emotion that will cause you to fight your way back to some type of reasonable life. So I'm not like a stoic in the regard to say that anger is temporary madness. I will say that there is a lot of power in anger if you can shape it to productive ends. I think the transcendentalist captured the use of kind of the full spectrum of emotion a lot better than stoics. I agree. I mean, I did an entire podcast on the notion that anger is good. I mean, there's no reason that we are equipped with any potential for any emotion unless it's there for a reason. So I can be angered about something and still use that to fuel me. As I told you, fear and anger were the things that pushed me whenever I was paralyzed, whenever I was trying to recover, because anger, if you get below it, is based on fear, fear that you'll lose something, fear that you won't be able to regain financial independence, fear that you won't be able to get out of this ambulance when it's negative 30 degrees outside. These are the things that drive us. And there's a reason why we have that. For some people, that's their go-to emotion because that's kind of what they've been conditioned to because they've been in so much fear. Or that's their last ditch effort to try to move forward, but listen to it. There's a reason why it's there. You even made a great comment about saying how that there are times when if you need a meal, I understand that. Or if you need to sleep in at a shelter, by all means do that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but there is something where if we give up on trying to give ourselves independence, we build resentment towards the very things that are helping us. We literally bite the hand that feeds us. We don't respect what we don't earn in some capacity, whether it be financially, emotionally, in some sort of working capacity, trying to, like you said, if I'm able to work for a meal, that makes more sense to me. If I'm able to earn this living by stocking shelves in the evening, by all means, that makes a lot of sense. But once we've come into that place where we've just sort of given up and now we have to stay in this place, it's weird how we twist it. Our cognitive dissonance, we want to still believe that we're this good person. Therefore, we have to shape all these other events to make that a true narrative for us, whether it be twisted or not. So you alluded to the fact that there was 
times whenever you were gaining your independence face some resistance from other people. Could you care to just to elaborate a little bit on that? I intend to write a book as soon as I retire. And it's one of those things where some of the pushback I got was from people that I would have expected to help me out. And unfortunately, I can't go too far into the details because I'm just especially active. But it it's interesting how people will come up with just ways. You know, I think it's society-wise. Like I understand that people are really hesitant to deal with homeless because obviously there's a lot of mental issues. So a lot of times that we just make things really, really freaking hostile to people that are in poverty, like absolutely hostile. Like, hey, if I, whatever. So here I had to move across half of a state to get a new job. I was homeless. I went into the library. Hey, I need a library card so I can sit on the computer. And they're like, well, your driver's license isn't from this town. So we have to charge you a deposit for you to get a library card in this town because we're scared that you won't return books or something like that. It's like, okay, so they give me access to computers for 15 minutes at a time versus four hours. Well, it's like, hey, I'm trying to do job applications. So you sit there for 15 minutes and you go to the back of line and the next guy gets four hours and even didn't register to vote or, hey, job applications a lot of times will require addresses and it becomes absolutely miserable to be homeless. In some towns, and I can say this because I've experienced it, but some towns, hey, if you have a tiny home park somewhere, the police are going to harass the crap out of you and they're going to knock on your door. They're going to threaten to take you into jail. I was in the back of a pickup truck, totally asleep have cops pounding on the door. To some degree, I understand that because, hey, they're trying to push people towards shelters because, hey, we don't want you freezing to death in this parking lot. So there may be a rational ends, but there becomes a question of like, hey, are the law enforcement agents really helping or are we just pushing people over to the next state? And there's a great book called Down and Out and Paris and London by George Orwell. If you ever find yourself homeless, I recommend you read it because really nothing has changed from what he experienced in that period where homeless, we call them transients for a reason because they get pushed a lot of different places. But kind of the big thing for me that really got really offended me was there was an issue of like, hey, can you park in the same parking place for certain periods of time? Or should that be considered illegal? Like, are you violating the camping policies by having a vehicle parked for too many days in a row? Or, you know, do you have to move that vehicle? And that just little stuff like that became an issue where it's, hey, I'm taking up a parking space in a parking lot that I don't do anything to other than walk out to. But hey, since it became an issue, now I have to drive and park outside of a fence and drive it back every day. Or where can I park a vehicle and be safe and not safe and the likes. So. Yeah, I do intend to write a book, hopefully on my experiences after I retire in about five years, because it would be an interesting book to explain just kind of the benefits of poverty, I think, too. And the Stoics were really big on it. So I think it really shaped my life for the better. It really caused me, number one, to get all the debt out. Now I'm definitely not in debt at all. It made me plan for the future. It made me simplify my life and understand kind of the, that amazing value of self-reliance and kind of shirking all the things that I don't need in a house that other everybody would just assume was part of a house. But, you know, once you're pushed to it, things change or how you operate. Yeah. It's amazing. The blessing of frugality where we understand even in business, for example, you have all these people that if they didn't have like a very low budget or they were on a shoestring, they wouldn't be innovative. They wouldn't disrupt 
industries because they would have just followed the norm, which is get a quarter of a million dollars and attach it to this line for these people to do this, whether it be sales or whether it be marketing or whatever it is. But frankly, the stuff that that actually makes the biggest waves are things that people don't see coming, which means they don't have the luxury of spending a lot of money on it. So whether it be, again, the tiny house kind of phenomenon, the ability to really see what you're made of on a day-to-day basis. I found a lot of people that they like the idea, like you said about earlier, they had this idea that they want to be stronger, but then when they have the opportunity to grow stronger, meaning they have to face difficulty and adversity, they choose to shy away from it. When they say that they want to learn to be more patient and then they have a person that's testing their patience, they don't want to lean into that as an opportunity. And again, this is coming from two men who who have had to do that, who have had no other choice other than to do that. Or the choice that they had was either that or something that was even greater discomfort. And frankly, you get to a point where it's like, listen, I'm no longer going to do this. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it any longer. And that anger can drive you if you can channel it properly. So understanding that being angry is fine. Acting angry in a negative capacity is not going to help you or anyone else, which again, the stoic philosophy about that is powerful. But I've even had clients that say, I felt bad about being angry. And so now they try to push it down and act like it's not there and just put blinders on, but they feel guilty or they don't pull that thorn out emotionally. And now what happens? It just continues to fester and build up and build up. And then these other things make them angry. And now they build resentment towards, like you say, these people, for example, if they say, I'm doing this for my family and they're working 12, 14 hours a day, working their finger on the bone and they come home and they don't feel appreciated. And in their mind, well, I'm doing this for my family and they don't appreciate me. Now there's this resentment attached to that. Now the very thing that they're working for is no longer a source of joy, a source of love, a force of motivation. It is actually something that is detrimental. And now the more they're at work, the more resentful they are of the people at home. Ironically, the people at home resent this person more because they're not at home as often. So now we have these, they're not irreconcilable differences, but it's about understanding, again, what's truly important. I think your kids would enjoy you being home a little bit more often than having an extra 20 or 40K in your bank account that you probably don't have the time or the compunction to use correctly. So that's what it comes down to. And having these things thrust upon us forces us to make those hard decisions because we wouldn't do it any other way. Well, it's interesting to see military connected, but if we look back 80 years, so if we look pre-World War II at the average size of the house, it's like 600 square feet. So really, really small. Like here I am in an apartment that's twice the size for a a family of four. But it was after World War II that housing regulations were changed to help the construction industry. So houses got larger and larger and larger. Well, the larger the house you have, the more it takes to upkeep, but it's the more stuff you have to put into it. You have tables, furniture, home decor. I always get in arguments with my wife because we're temporarily living where we are until I can buy a homestead and retire. So it's always the, hey, do we need it? Or what you're buying, is that what you want to keep for decades versus, hey, I'm just using this because it looks good in my current apartment, but I got to move in two years and then I'll throw that away and I'll have to buy something else that goes with that decor of that apartment. I think my living space was 84 square feet is what I lived in, but I loved it because I used a wood stove. So every weekend I would drive out to the local state park that allowed, allowed me to go through and harvest firewood. So my weekends were spent hauling firewood, chopping, swinging an axe, you know, probably the best or psychological therapy I could ever imagine is chopping firewood. But you get outside so much more and then it goes back to the kind of resiliency. Like you think that, oh, it would be painful sleeping in an environment. Like if I said, hey, you need to go sleep in a room that's like 40 degrees. 
Well, it really isn't that big a deal if you get used to it over time in terms of your body acclimates to things. But we are so accustomed to living inside boxes now that are, are climate controlled that we we have to hide in the air conditioning during the summer. And then we have to hide in the, the heated apartment during the winter. We're not being exposed to the sun. We're not going out. We're not having the experiences or walks or doing the physical activity. Yeah, it's really hurting us in several regards, mentally and physically and we're still eating the same amount of food, so we're getting fat because we're not burning off the calories. That's it. We see over 100 years how it sort of causes to devolve in many ways. And like you said, the housing industries are giving us more room to put more stuff in there. The food industries are making more hyper-calorically dense food that is not necessarily feeding us the, the right nutrients. And even then, this idea of, like you were saying, even... 300 years ago, our ancestors were living in these environments. Yeah, there were fires or things like that, but there wasn't air conditioning. There weren't these things. In fact, our very ancestors, the very reason we were able to evolve the way that we were so quickly was because we could adapt. We could kill something in the Serengeti and run back with it and keep ourselves at, at least moderately cool to a place where we're not going to die. And having that resilience gave us a tremendous advantage compared to other predators in that environment. And then as we continue to proliferate, that just kept going. It's only until recently that we did that. So looking at the tremendous advantage that that can give us, knowing whether it be a person who's trying to be aggressive selling you something or a person that is looking at your family in an aggressive capacity, there's a certain advantage knowing that you have the resilience, that you have a physical ability, a martial skill set, and the ability to channel these emotions, whether it be anger. Frankly, anger is good if you are trying to defend yourself or your family. Like if that's the thing that drives you on to survive, to protect them, embrace that, man. That is what's going to get you to the other side. Do you want to live there? Of course not. It's almost like the darkness or the, the dark force or whatever. But the idea is we can't always live in that space. But having said that, there's a reason why it's there. And to act like it's not, to just turn a blind eye means that we are going to be woefully ambushed by it when it comes out of sideways. And if I wait until I'm in the heat of it, to start trying to decide, oh, there's this huge adrenaline dump. I wonder what I want to do now. It's too late, guys. Once the first contact is made, once the fire fight begins, you can't stop and, and say, can we start over? I, I think that I need to work on my resiliency. It's like, it doesn't matter. And if your enemy has continued to work on that resiliency and they continue to adapt and they have this very single-minded ideology, they're always going to have an advantage against you, no matter how technological advantage you are by comparison. So. We've seen time and again how that plays out. Doctor, where can we learn more about you? Where can we learn more about your work? You have some eBooks. You have an incredible podcast, which again, thank you for having me as a guest on. And we can hear what you had to say on Stoic Connect's military this year as well. Yes. So my primary platform is YouTube. So you can search Fire Evolving Warfighter or by my last name, Anis. However, it seems like YouTube is becoming more and more hostile to kind of military themed channels. So I'm seeing my traffic squeezed. So uh, you can also find me on Odyssey and BitChute. I think those platforms provide a lot more freedom. And if you want to get notifications of new stuff, the new tech platforms seem to be a lot more reliable than the YouTube. On Twitter, you can find me at Evolving War. You can also look me up on, on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here today, my friend. I learned a lot and I appreciate these conversations and I look forward to more conversations in the future. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.